0: Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yeah. It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 164 for October 11th, 2009. Have you ever found yourself walking in a park or by the ocean or in some other really attractive place? The scene is just so beautiful you have to take a picture of it. Then you go home and look at the picture, and it doesn't look anything like what you remember. Much of the image is pure white. Other large areas are pure black. In between, there are little bits of the scene that sort of remind you of what you saw. But overall, the image is disappointing. Well, it's not your fault. Because of the way our eyes work, we see a lot more detail than we really see. We can focus on only one thing at a time, but our eyes keep moving. As they move, they adjust to the amount of light they're receiving. Cameras don't do this. They see everything at once. If some areas are too dark to be recorded properly, they're underexposed, and the shadows are clipped if you have a digital camera. If the areas are too bright to be recorded properly, they're overexposed, and the highlights are clipped. When clipping occurs, there is no more detail. The solution involves creating a high dynamic range image, HDR, and then using tone mapping. If you've tried this on your own, there's a good chance that you've been frustrated. If you didn't use your camera's RAW mode, you'll need at least three images, And if you do use your camera's RAW mode, it's still a good idea to take at least three images at different exposures. This can be a problem with images that are done outdoors, though. You'll need to find a way to align the images. If anything moved between one exposure and the next, you'll need to figure out how to deal with that, too. This is one of the reasons that RAW images are better. They record enough information that you can usually make a pretty good HDR image out of a single raw image. So, the first thing to do if you think you'll need HDR processing is to use your cameras raw mode. Then you'll probably be able to create the images you need from a single exposure. Everything will be in the same place and everything will be aligned automatically. You might wonder why three images? Well, depending on the dynamic range of the light, one will need to be at what can be considered the normal exposure for the scene. That's the exposure that gets the middle tones right. The other two will need to be one or two stops, underexposed, or overexposed. For extreme scenes, you might need five images or more. Using the camera's RAW format should allow you to create at least the basic three-image series. Take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. There you'll see three images. You'll see the normal exposure image, and you'll see that in the normal exposure images, there are lots of clipped highlights and lots of clipped shadows. And you'll see what is the underexposed image. The sky is good. There are no clipped highlights anymore, but there's a lot more clipping in the shadows. And then you'll see the overexposed image. It looks pretty good in the shadows, but the sky is completely gone. So what we need is a way to combine these three images. And that is exactly what Photomatix Pro does. And the result is an image that looks a lot more like what your eyes saw. Assuming you're using a raw image, you'll want to start with your camera manufacturer's raw image processor or with Adobe Camera Raw. Adjust the exposure and save 3 TIFF images. In this case, I chose to save a normal exposure, one with the exposure reduced 2 stops, and one with the exposure increased by 2 stops. I then opened Photomatix Pro, which functions as a Photoshop plug-in, but it's also its own separate application. That's the way I used it here. I dragged the three files into it. Photomatics asked what I wanted to do with those images. I selected create an HDR image. We'll come back later to another option that's on this same page. It's called fuse exposures. Photomatix then listed the images. This may seem to be redundant, but I also could have used this part of the interface to browse for images, and if I accidentally import an incorrect image or too many images, I can remove it here to avoid confusing the program. The images I gave Photomatix had no exposure information, so the application tried to determine which photo was normal, which was underexposed, and which was overexposed. It got them all right. Well, then it was time for me to make some decisions. Because all of the three images are, except for exposure, duplicates of one another, no alignment was needed, but I left that option selected anyway. I told the program to reduce chromatic aberrations, that's always a good idea, to reduce noise, also, I would leave that on in all cases, and attempt to reduce ghosting artifacts. Again, because all three images are exactly the same in terms of what's in them, The only thing that has changed is the exposure. There won't be any ghosting. This happens only when something has moved between exposures. Then Photomatix chugs away for a while and shows you your HDR image. You're going to be disappointed. No question about it. You will be disappointed. How's this any better, you'll think? The image looks horrible. The dark areas are almost completely black. There's no detail there. How is this better? Okay, well, Photomatix explains on that page that more processing is needed before you'll be able to see the results. HDR processing is done with images that have 16 bits of data per color channel. So that's what the image on the screen is trying to display, 16 bits of data per channel. Unfortunately, your computer can handle only 8 bits per channel, so it's not going to look very good no matter what you do what's needed is tone mapping. This works because today's video subsystems can handle 16.7 million colors. So what's needed is a process to map colors that are outside the computer's gamut to colors that are within the gamut. Okay, in other words, it's magic. I clicked the tone mapping button, and Photomatix returned an image that looked considerably better. At this point, you still have some decisions to make. There are two tabs on a panel, and you'll want to experiment with both so that you can learn which images are processed more effectively by each of the two major options. Numerous options exist on each of the tabs, and you'll just want to experiment with those controls to determine what they do and how. There is documentation, but i found that simple experimentation is usually the best option for determining how something like this works, because it's less science than it is art you want the image to look good. And what looks good for one image will look horrible for another. So just play with it. Experiment. Move the sliders. Then you'll be happy with the result. I mentioned earlier that there's the option to fuse exposures. This works better with some images, and you should experiment with it as you learn how to use the program. On the TechBinder Worldwide website, you'll see a fused image, and an HDR image with tone mapping from the same original picture. I like the tone mapping better than the fusing for this particular picture. As you work through exercises such as this, keep in mind that photography is part science, part technology, and a lot art. I already said that, but it's worth repeating. The art part is the most important of the three. An image can get the technology and the science right, but still be uninteresting. When the image looks right to you, the image is right. Photomatix Pro can help with the technology and the science. It's up to you to decide when the art is right. Bottom line for Photomatix Pro, five cats. I have read so many articles about HDR processing and tried to follow them only to find the explanation omitted some critical detail or I missed a step somewhere. Nothing ever looked quite the way I thought it should Photomatix Pro changed all that in an instant. One hundred dollars for Photomatix Pro, one hundred twenty dollars for Photomatix Pro Plus. The Plus version adds plugins for Photoshop and, if you're a Mac user, Aperture. Photomatix Pro includes the standalone program and a plugin for Lightroom. For more information, you can visit the Photomatix Pro website, and you'll of course find a the link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I'm old enough to remember when even well-heeled news organizations didn't make a lot of calls to foreign countries. In some cases, the setup fee could be several hundred dollars. Timing was tricky, and your call might cost several dollars per minute. It wasn't something you did on a whim. If you wanted to call someone in Europe, the call would need to be approved not just by the news director, but probably by the station's general manager. Today, you can call most countries for less than 10 cents a minute, And the most expensive locations are North Korea, who even knew you could call there, and Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Speaking of remembering, remember when it was difficult to obtain a Gmail account? I'm going somewhere with this. You had to be invited. Google Voice, that's what I'm talking about here, has some similarities, except that obtaining an invitation is currently harder, a lot harder. I managed to obtain one, and no, I'm not going to tell you how. And unfortunately, I can't offer you an invitation because I don't yet have the rights to offer an invitation. But if you want to send me a request, I'll send you one as soon as I can. Let's get one thing out of the way right now. Yes, you can make cheap calls to just about anywhere in the world, but that's just the beginning of what Google Voice provides, and that's why cheapskates are so excited about it and why some civil libertarians are a little worried, maybe a lot worried. Here's a quick review of some of the prices. You can, of course, with Google Voice, call Canada, the United States, and even the Yukon Territory without any cost at all. There is some cost to call Alaska. For two cents a minute, you can call places like Austria, China, Denmark, France, Germany, Greece, Hong Kong, Hungary, Ireland, lots of places in Mexico, the Netherlands, Norway, Poland. For just three cents a minute, You add Australia, Belgium, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Iceland, Israel, South Korea, and some parts of Russia. At $0.04 a minute, you can call the Bahamas, Brazil, Bulgaria, Slovenia, Alaska. At $0.05, Bahrain, Brunei, Colombia, Cyprus, Finland, and several other countries. Lots of other countries in the $0.05 range. At $0.06, you can start calling Georgia. Not the state of Georgia, the country that was at one time part of the Soviet Union. Latvia, Liechtenstein, Lithuania, Romania, South Africa, the Vatican City. Seven cents a minute, India, Uruguay. Alright, so we'll skip over the nine, ten, eleven, fifteen, sixteen, twenty cent a minute calls. You'll see the whole list on the TechBinder worldwide website. The ones that are kind of expensive, probably places you wouldn't be likely to call, forty cents a minute for Tonga. <laughs> I don't think I've ever needed to call Tonga or particularly wanted to. Somalia, Tuvalu, and then of course at 60 cents a minute, yeah, 60 cents a minute, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, or North Korea. But as I said, that's just the start. When you sign up, you get to pick your own phone number starting with the area code. should you decide later that you'd like a different number or a different area code, you will have to pay a one-time $10 fee. Not all area codes are available, of course. Most are. Not too surprisingly, you cannot get a 212 area code number. Okay, not even people who live in Manhattan can get a 212 area code number these days. They're just all in use. You can define an area code, and Google Voice will begin displaying the available numbers in that area code. Pick the one you like, or add some additional digits. I gave Google the last four digits of my cell phone number, and it offered me a Worthington Exchange number that ended with those four digits. So I selected that one. But I would recommend you don't do that. I have found that it is next to impossible for me to remember the number, and even when I remember it, I'm not quite sure. You'll probably be better off with a totally different number. I may pay the ten bucks to switch it. When somebody calls your Google Voice number, one of several things can happen. Google Voice could ask the caller to state their name and then announce the call to you. For people you know, you can tell Google Voice to forward the call to your home phone, your cell phone, or some other phone, or directly to voicemail. And if the call goes to voicemail, you can listen to the message as the caller leaves it and choose to answer, pick up the phone at any time. One appealing feature for me is the ability to record calls. Currently, you can't record outbound calls, but only those calls that come to one of your phones via Google Voice. To record the call, you press 4. Google Voice automatically announces that the call is being recorded. When you press 4 again or hang up, the recording ends. If you press 4 during the call, Google Voice will announce that the recording has been suspended. Recordings are saved online, and you can access them just the same as you do with voicemail. Text messages are easy, too, because you can use Google's web interface and your computer's keyboard, not the tiny keypad on your phone. When you receive a voicemail message, Google Voice converts the speech to text and sends the text message to you by email or as a text message to your phone. How well does this work? Amazingly well. I called myself and said, hello, this is a test. Let's see how Google Voice does on this. Thank you very much and have a fun day. When the text message arrived, it said, Hello, this is a test. Let's see how Global Voice, period, does on this. Thank you very much, and have a Sunday. (laughs) Well, I made the call on a Sunday. So, overall, not a bad translation. To make international calls, you dial your Google number, press 2, and then you can call just about anywhere in the world. You can also make calls directly from the Google Voice website. It establishes the call and then connects to one of your own enrolled phones. Google gives you 10 cents worth of credits when you sign up. That's enough for a five-minute call to a lot of countries. To talk more, you will need to purchase credits through Google Checkout. Bottom line on Google Voice, I would give it three cats right now. Probably we'll get four later. Depending on your privacy concerns, Google Voice is a great service. I mean, look at it this way. This is technology that the East German Stasi wanted. Imagine sending all telephone calls through a system that knows who you are, knows who you're calling, and can record or transcribe the conversation. Those with severe privacy concerns are going to be alarmed about this, and perhaps rightly so. But for most of us, I suspect that the conveniences provided by the service will more than offset the security concerns. That's what Google's betting on anyway. For more information, you can visit the Google Voice website. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And you can request an invitation. But you may have to wait several weeks or even months to get one. We're a couple of weeks away from the Windows 7 launch, and Walt Mossberg has written a bit about it. Walt Mossberg. You probably recognize the name. He's the Wall Street Journal's technology columnist. When I used to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, I never missed his column. At that time, he tended to lean more toward Macs, as he still does, and as does David Pogue, cross-town at the New York Times. But I found his comments worthwhile, always. What Mossberg has to say about Windows 7 may be shocking to some Apple owners. These are his words, and I quote after using pre-release versions of Windows 7 for nine months and intensively testing the final version for the past month on many different machines, I believe it's the best version of Windows Microsoft has ever produced. It's a boost to productivity and a pleasure to use. Despite a few drawbacks, I can heartily recommend Windows 7 to mainstream consumers. Mossberg goes on. In recent years, I, like many other reviewers, have argued that Apple's Mac OS X operating system is much better than Windows. That's no longer true. I still give the Mac OS a slight edge because it has a much easier and cheaper upgrade path, more built-in software programs, and far less vulnerability to viruses and other malicious software, which are overwhelmingly built to run on Windows. Mossberg also says that now, however, it's much more of a toss-up between the two rivals, Windows 7 beats the Mac OS in some areas, such as better previews and navigation right from the taskbar, easier organization of open windows on the desktop, and touch screen capabilities. So Apple will have to scramble now that the gift of a flawed Vista has been replaced with a reliable, elegant version of Windows. Again, those are the words of Walt Mossberg in the Wall Street Journal. So if you don't believe what I've been saying about Windows 7 for these past few months, there is the word from Walt. I wasn't a Mac user in the early days, but I concede that early versions of Windows were poor, abysmal even. Starting with Windows 95, though, Microsoft pulled ahead of Apple technologically. With the advent of OS 10, 10.1, Apple took the lead again. I can't use the latest version of Apple's operating system because it runs only on Intel-based processors, but I've heard that Snow Leopard is a minor upgrade, consisting mainly of performance tweaks and some security measures. Windows 7 is clearly priced way too high, but I have a feeling that a lot of Vista users would be willing to pay almost anything to rid themselves of that operating system. October 22nd. That's when you can join Walt Mossberg, lots of Microsoft TechNet subscribers, and me in the wonderful world of Windows 7. In short circuits, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has characterized global warming as junk science, despite the fact that an overwhelming number of scientists agree that the threat is real. The organization uses members' dues to fight against measures aimed at mitigating the effects of global warming. Apple Computer, okay, you knew there was some sort of technological connection here. Apple Computer is a member of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, or let me correct that. Apple Computer was a member of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. There's a story behind that. Apple released a statement when it resigned from the Chamber of Commerce, and I quote, We strongly object to the Chamber's recent comments opposing the EPA's effort to limit greenhouse gases. We would prefer that the Chamber take a more progressive stance on this critical issue and play a constructive role in addressing the climate crisis. It's interesting to see technology companies such as Apple do something like that. Although other companies, Nike for example, nuclear power provider Exelon, and Pacific Gas and Electric, have all resigned from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Citing the organization's opposition to climate change legislation, Apple is possibly the most visible high-tech company to do so. According to the New York Times, Apple's resignation is effective immediately. Apple's vice president of worldwide government affairs, Catherine Novelli, characterized the chamber's stance on climate change issues as frustrating. In a letter to the Chamber of Commerce, Novelli wrote that Apple strongly objects to the Chamber's recent comments opposing the EPA's effort to limit greenhouse gases. Chamber of Commerce head Thomas Donahue says that Apple has misstated the Chamber's position on climate policy. He went on to suggest a conspiracy. Companies are dropping their memberships, he said, as part of an orchestrated campaign. Those who want to put a political spin on this section should note that I have reported comments by both sides. And I've given the U.S. Chamber of Commerce the final word, which is the most powerful position. eWeek magazine this week had an article titled 10 Must Have Applications on Windows 7 Launch Day. 10x, you must y. That's a pretty common theme to hang an article on a list of 10 somethings. A lot of publications do that these days. I wondered if the writers, though, had come up with 10 really essential apps for Windows 7. So I started looking through the list. What did they have? iTunes. Well, yeah, I suppose. But you probably already have iTunes. Depending on what you want to do and how you use digital media, Winamp, with or without the VLC media player, might be a better choice. Microsoft Security Essentials. Well... Yeah, I mean, that comes with the operating system. Microsoft's free security package is going to be there. It does an okay job of detecting malware. Uh, But thanks, guys. I'm going to continue using AVG. In fact, I just renewed my subscription. Office 2007. Wait a minute. This is a must-have application? Most people could make do with OpenOffice quite easily. It's true that Office 2007 plays very well with Windows 7, but it's hardly a must-have application Okay, we're only three deep in the list, and already I'm questioning the choices. Photoshop Elements 8. Good choice. I would push, though, for Adobe Lightroom, if you're really into digital photography. This is more important, in my estimation, even than Photoshop. Adobe Premiere Elements. Wow, they're making a lot of assumptions here. Adobe Premiere, CS4 or Elements, both great programs, but if you're not at all interested in video, you don't want it or need it. Must have? Hardly. AVG antivirus. Well, this is halfway down the list. Why is that? I would put it up at the top. Yes, you need an antivirus program with Windows 7, and this is a good one. It is, in fact, the one I use. Next on the eWeek list, Tweak 7. Never heard of it. The author says Windows 7 owners will be able to optimize Windows 7 by increasing efficiency and cutting down on wasteful programs. It's a $40 program. So far, I haven't needed it, but it does appear to offer some useful features, so I'll look into it at some point in the near future. Google Chrome. That's Google's browser. Yes, it plays well with Windows 7, but Firefox is still the browser to beat, at least in my estimation. Why did they not list Firefox? Google Desktop. Okay, maybe. The Windows 7 search works well enough for me, and that's saying something, because I refuse to allow previous versions of Microsoft Search to run. It just bogged the disk down too much. Still, Google Desktop is pretty well regarded. And last on their list, TrueCrypt. We use this at the office to encrypt data on all workstations. One of our clients insists that all data must be encrypted both on the wire and at rest. TrueCrypt covers the at rest part. My only question is whether you need to encrypt everything on your hard drive or drives, and whether you're willing to put up with the risks posed by such an application. Is this a must-have application? Not in my book. What would I recommend? Well, I don't have a list of ten, but it's the first several must-have applications that I make sure are installed on my computer whenever I install a new operating system or set up a new computer. The simple fact is this. What's important to me may not be important to you. As with so many other things in life, there is no easy list that fits everybody's needs. But here's what I wouldn't want to be without. UltraEdit. I cannot imagine working without the text editor UltraEdit. Most of what I write for TechBiter Worldwide begins in UltraEdit because I can write without being concerned about formatting. But it's also the tool I choose when I need to write JavaScript or some other programming language. Snagit and Thumbs Plus. I put these together, even though they're from totally different companies. They are essential to me. Snagit allows me to grab screenshots. Windows 7 has a built-in function, but I still prefer Snagit. Then, when it's time to prepare images for use on the website, there is no better tool than Thumbs Plus. FileZilla. I need to upload files to the TechBiter Worldwide website, and also to the websites of various clients. This is the application that makes all that possible. The Adobe CS4 suite, from Photoshop to InDesign, from Dreamweaver to Bridge, from Illustrator to Fireworks, this is the suite that contains just about everything. The BAT. This is the program that, when I set up a new machine, is the second program installed. The first is AVG Antivirus. It's my longtime favorite email program, very much a personal choice, but it's the email program I've been using since about 1999. And at the end of my list, Firefox. Firefox is fine on its own, but there are thousands of add-ons that make everything much better. I use Firefox, Chrome, and occasionally Internet Explorer and Opera. But Firefox is the one I use most often because of its ability to accept those add-ons. So my point is this. Nobody can tell you what is the most important application. It's important for you, before you upgrade your computer to Windows 7, to confirm the applications you feel are essential will work with Windows 7. And there's a good chance they will. Windows 7 has been very well thought through. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.